Oh, sorry. Sorry. No problem. <clears throat> so um, <laughs> it was like offering. Oh, we're going to go. Was it coffee? Coffee again? <laughs> so um, we're going we're gonna to lift our offering. Can we do that? If you're with us and you're a visitor, don't um, be um, uh, feeling pressurized into that. Um, the, the, the baskets are going to go around now. <clears throat> um, and uh, you can give and let's give generously on to the Lord. Um, just so you know, the special offering in Lurgan that we um, gave to, thank you so much. We ha- were able to give a considerable amount. Here is uh, Emmanuel poured it down into that. The grand total for what they were able to raise all together in Lurgan after a few more gifts came in after the day was £267,000. So uh, um, praise God. Eh? <clears throat> So hopefully that means we can do all the building work that we want to do without having to borrow, um, which is wonderful, isn't it? Um, and uh, we want to give God the glory for that. So let's continue to give generously unto the Lord um, and uh, worship Him in that way. Um, if, if you are a visitor with us, you're really welcome this morning. It's great to have you here, as Lazy has already said. Um, you, you can, um, just as she said, if, you, if you're here and you've been here for a couple of weeks, or even this is your first week, but you are thinking that this could potentially be a home for you, you can stay for our soup lunch, quite an informal um, time just to connect with people and share a little bit about our vision and heart. There's no pressure to sign up for anything there and then. If you just wanted to hear a little bit more, there's plenty of soup for you. And, um, and please jump in with us this Wednesday night in the different locations as we as we pray. <clears throat> I want to share and kick on this morning by sharing a little bit more on our theme of Unveil Faces. I'm really uh, pleased that Leslie shared what you felt the Lord had placed on her heart because it ties in beautifully with what I feel the Lord wants to do and say to us this morning. Um, uh, we've been talking about uh, this theme over the past few weeks and I suppose we've been trying to really help you become aware of the holiness of God, um, of the otherness of God, of the nature of the transcendence of God, His beyondness, His majesty, His awesomeness, and yet the amazing beauty and reality of the fact that this awesome other beyond us, hard to get your head around kind of God, wants us to look into His face wants to look into ours and <clears throat> it's a beautiful kind of almost almost paradoxical kind of thing that something so powerful could be so intimate uh, Chris has been particularly pushing us I think over the last few weeks or so to, to really think about the holiness of God and, and and this is so important because in any pre-outpouring moment which is what we feel we're in um feel we're in a, a pre-outpouring moment, but in any pre-outpouring time, there's a heightened sensitivity to the holiness of God, to an awareness of sin, to a desire to want to be changed and transformed into His glory. And that's not <clears throat> because God's up in heaven going, I'm holy, you're not, try harder. Because that's legalism. Uh, and that's not what God does. He's like, I'm all-powerful, I'm really holy, you sort yourself out and then you can come to me. That's that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a God who is saying, I, I want you to be like me. I, I, I've created you to be like me. Uh, it's always been my intention for you to love me in the same way that I love you. That's the kind of level of relationship and intimacy that I want. And uh, see, God knows, you shared this a few weeks ago, God knows even in the same way there's a a loving father or mother looks into the face of a child. God knows that the primal foundation of our being comes from looking into his face. God knows that he is the source of our identity, the source of all that's good, the source of being, the source of actual being itself, the, the source of our salvation, the remedy for our sin and for our self-centeredness that disrupts and corrupts and perverts the image of God within us. God knows that the remedy for all of that and the source of all that's good actually comes from looking into his face because we're created from him. Remember, we always have to remember that we're not his invention, we're his creation. We didn't, he didn't invent us like we'd be some kind of robot that he could wind up to do what he says we have to do because 
perfect love is free, and perfect love is free will. Love is a choice. Otherwise, then it's a, it's a diminished form of love if it makes you and forces you to do something. And God's desire is God is the perfect, free, loving being that has ever existed, and he creates us in his image. And what he longs for is he loves for a reciprocal love that's taken up with one another so that we can enjoy him. And <clears throat> in looking on his face, you know, there's a problem, though. The problem is that we don't really want to do that because we'd rather look at our own faces than his. <laughs> but that's what the problem with sin is. If you eat of this tree, you can be like God. We, we'd rather worship ourselves than we would worship him at times. And so the, the remedy of that is found in looking in his face. Where When we look in his face and we get a glimpse of his heart and his glory, then what happens is we become aware of our um, of what we are what we are without him, which is a scary place when you get to that place. When you when you get to a place where you realize what you what you are outside of God. Um and yet in that moment when we realize that, it's kind of enveloped by a bigger reality of an invitation to become like him. And so he takes our sin and he infects us with his holiness by a touch of his presence. We are his creation, not his invention. God is very, very, very heavily invested about who and who you are and who you're becoming. Okay? It's, you're his creation. You're his creation. He is the heavenly father who created us. And so God is deeply invested in who we're becoming. And uh, we, we also have come to realize that because of this, when God is talking about his presence in the Bible, the Hebrew word for presence is the same word as face. And so we've come to realize that the substance of heaven is the face of God. The favor, the smile of God, the peace and wholeness for flourishing and for witness is what it means when God talks about his, his presence or his face. So the same word in the Hebrew. And, um, and therefore, when we talk about God's presence, we're not talking about some mystical, you know, kind of, ethereal kind of thing that's sort of out there. And we're not certainly not talking about some vague technical dogma or theory. When we talk about the presence of God, we're talking about the face of Father God. And that has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And so a few weeks ago, we, we had some... Um, we had some fun looking at Moses and the intensity of the encounter that he had with God that showed us the importance of the face of God, where he said, God, we're not going anywhere without your presence. We don't want the promise without your face. Yeah, it has to, it's the source of everything. It's the thing that makes us distinct. It's the thing that reveals the favor of God that's on us. We're nothing without your face, so we can't go anywhere unless your face goes with us. And God was trying to show his people that there, and through the smile of his face upon them, that they would display to the world the favor of God and the heart of who God is, that they would be his holy nation, that they would belong to him, that they would be the people that display the light of God's face. And that's what we're supposed to be. It's part of a bigger story. The children of Israel kind of got this. Well, some of them did anyway. This particular psalmist did. If it was David, then he says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. We see this numerous times in the ancient wisdom of the Scriptures. Why, though? So that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Right? So, Lord, let your face shine upon us. We want to receive the blessing and the smile of the God who split the seas. God, we want to receive that smile. Why? Well, yes, so that we can enjoy it, but that your ways may be known to the whole earth, that everybody will get in on us, in on this, that everyone will know that this is the plan of God. And, um, and what they knew in the Old Testament was intensified. In the New Testament, particularly when Jesus stepped on the planet Earth, and the glory of God was revealed in the face of Jesus, a person that was fully human, like us, who, who showed us what God was like and showed us that this love is not for the elite or not for a certain group of people, but this love is for everyone. It's for the broken and the despised and the poor and the prostitute. The smile of the face of God in the person of Jesus comes. So we are left with this wonderful verse, which is our theme for this theme. <laughs> this is a verse for this theme. We all with unveiled faces contemplate, contemplate the Lord's glory. 
and we are being transformed into his image. We're becoming like him. We're not becoming, I know I keep saying this this week, but I just feel it's so important because we've been, we've been, we've been so deceived and, and diminished in our understanding of what we're supposed to become. We're not becoming a good person. We're not reading self-help books to modify our behavior. It's not what we're about. Right, those might be helpful, but that's not what this is about. This is being transformed into the, this is looking like Jesus. This is taking on his nature. This is becoming like the very person that Jesus was. That's our destiny. And, you know, with loving kind of um, encouragement, I say this, this is your destiny, whether you agree with it or not. This is my conviction that every single person here, no matter where you are in your relationship with God, them, your ultimate destiny is to look like Jesus is to become part of his character. That's why you were originally formed in his image, and that's why Jesus um, thought so much of you that he would come and die for you so that you and I could become like him. But we get to look at him with an unveiled face. It doesn't have to be, because of what Jesus has done, there doesn't need to be anything in between. Right? Like Leslie like shared, he wants us, he wants to look into our face, and he wants us to look into his. This is how close and personal and intimate this all-powerful God wants to be with us with ever-increasing glory, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so I suppose we've quite simply just been praying. And the reason that we're doing this theme is, is because we're, we're longing as a people to have a fresh glimpse of Jesus. It's as simple as that, really. This word contemplate means to fix our eyes upon, to see with attention, and to observe with care. We, we, we want to really gaze into the beauty of his face. But we need hunger to do that. And maybe even more than hunger, we need desperation to do that. And so I just feel like this morning, I was going to dive into like a sort of deep enough kind of teaching of the old covenant, the new covenant, which we'll get to because it's so important. But, but I just feel like what I need to do this morning for my own heart, but also for us as a body, I think, is to exhort you towards being hungry for God to encourage you to pray for a longing that seizes your soul, that nothing else really seems as important as getting a glimpse of Jesus. I think he wants us to get a perspective change today. I think he wants us to join, like with John, when he was on the island of Patmos, and it was like heaven was ripped open, and he got a view into what was going on in heaven where around the throne, the elders and the angels are falling down worshiping Jesus. That is reality. That is reality. And the churches in the New Testament, that revelation is, yeah, maybe about the end times, but it was written in an, as an encouragement for the church that no matter what the Babylon of the day, no matter what empire of the day might be looking like it's succeeding, the ultimate reality is there is a king above all kings and there is a Lord above all lords and all around the throne, they're falling down because they can't hardly stand in the presence because there's a song that's sounding tonight, today, today, not just in the future, not just when we all get, but right now there's a song and the song in heaven is worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and glory and honor and power. That is the reality. And unless you get a glimpse of that reality, you'll believe the reality that's right in front of you. You'll believe just what you see and what we hear. But the ultimate reality, we need a perspective change. If we're truly going to walk the line, and it's getting more and more precarious in the world in which we live, to walk the line of grace and truth. To not jump in with the fundamentalist right, that's the left. The fundamentalist right, and to not like, you know, get sucked into the progressive left. That's not our job. Our job is to walk the line of truth and grace and follow Jesus. And you can't do that by just engaging in conversations over social media of what every other person's opinion is. I'm not saying those things aren't unimportant. They are important. And some of those debates we maybe need to get involved in. But ultimately, the problem is we're getting involved with them without glimpsing Jesus, without looking on his face, without a perspective of ultimate reality, which is Jesus is Lord has been Lord, always will be Lord, and he is making all things new in and of himself. 
And so my feeling is that the Spirit of God today and in this season that we're in wants to stir your heart, wants to stir my heart, wants to seize hold of our souls to say, will you burn? Will you burn again with love and desire for me? Will you be hungry for a glimpse of his face? Will you shift my focus and attentions that are often on anything but you, Jesus, back onto you? Would you become my true north? Would you lift up my gaze? I dare you this morning. I dare you this morning to allow the Lord to disrupt all the categories that you've placed him in. I dare you to say, God, come and shake me right up all over again. I don't care whether I've known you for a week or whether I've known you for 50 years. I dare you to say, Lord Jesus, this morning, come and sear and burn your love into my heart all over again. That's my dare, a double dare, right? I I dare you. And we're going to pray at the end. So between now and then, you can make up your mind whether or not you want to pray that prayer. Because I think that's the kind of prayer that the Lord wants us to pray. But here's the thing. I I am very um, sobered as I preach this message before the Lord this morning, because I can't make that happen. And I can't manufacture that. It has to be the Spirit of the Lord. So even though from time to time I might get excited as I preach it, don't be fooled into thinking that I can whip it up. Can't do that. And so let's gather around the Scriptures for a moment. And let's gather around the Psalm, and then I'm going to jump a little bit more into Psalm 63. I want you to look at some of the words. You God are my God. You God are my God. Earnestly. Earnestly. Somewhere else the psalmist said, my soul follows hard after you. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being. Right there, There you go. My whole being. My whole being longs for you. When, you know, this is, these are the questions I've asked, I'm asking myself, so I'm only asking them of you because I'm asking myself of them. When was the last time your, your whole being ached, yearned, longed for Jesus? My whole being, everything within me, everything within me longing for you. In a dry and a parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life. The psalmist got to a place here where the love of God is better than just even living itself. <laughs> your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully, fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. Jesus is enough. And the thing about it is, if you just for a moment you think about it, the psalmists haven't even seen Jesus yet. They've just been so taken up with Yahweh and his presence and who he is that they're able to say words like this before they've even seen Jesus. It's incredibly inspiring when you think of it. They're just taken up with the fair beauty of God and worshiping him in the beauty of his holiness. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the sea. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. You are my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. And I feel the challenge for us this morning is, are we willing to count the cost of what it means to have him alone? I know this is a kind of a dangerous term in the world we live in today, the term radicalized, but I think the Lord wants to radicalize us and our love for him. And it would it it would be interesting to see what would happen if we were radicalized in love for Jesus to teach us what it is to love him like he loves us. He's always wanted a bride like this, guys. This is the kind of bride he's always longed for. This is the church he's always wanted. A church that looks into his heart and sees in the heart of Jesus a heart that's on fire with love for us. 
and that somehow the fire that's burning in the heart of Jesus for us would somehow ignite something in us and that those fires would almost um, burn together. This is what some of the old preachers call the fellowship of the burning heart. This is what Jesus has always wanted, that then we can get joined in with what he's doing. And in Revelation, a number of times, it tells us how the church and the Spirit would begin to cry together. And, you know, they're crying out for Jesus and for his presence and for Jesus to come back. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Uh, I think that's because the Spirit and the bride have become one cry. The, the cry of Jesus, the cry of the Spirit, sorry, the cry of the Spirit and the cry of the church have become the same thing because we've learned and we're learning how to love Jesus in the same way that he loves us. And so it's almost like the cry of Jesus in us cries out to Jesus himself. And there's a, a oneness and a depth of intimacy that starts to happen and we cry, come, this is the cry of the revival people. This is the cry of revival people. That the spirit and the bride together, they say, they, they say, come. Johnny Gracie sent me this last night, and I thought it was a great quote, so I incorporated it into today. A church can be orthodox in doctrine, efficient in service, blameless in character, beautiful in ritual, rich in culture, eloquent in preaching. Yet all these things are but ashes on a rusty altar if it knows nothing of a burning, blazing love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's the church at Ephesus kind of stuff, isn't it? You look good. You preach good. You know, you're pretty mature and even in your character. But I have this against you. You just, you've just, your love for me is just cooled way down. It's like lukewarm now. You've lost your first love. And so <clears throat> I just, I just feel like this morning is more than really teaching, is sharing a few thoughts that the Holy Spirit would hopefully take. And incite and stir hunger within us to really look upon the face of God because we can we can preach until we're kind of blue in the face about wanting to look on the face of Jesus but unless we want to unless we really want to then we're just trying to persuade and I, I and I'm speaking to myself again by saying I don't want to just persuade and I, I don't want to feel like I have to do this because I'm a pastor and I should you know, I want, it to, I want it to be something more than that. Want, you want it to come from the depths of who we are as a people. And I think that's the kind of love that Jesus is looking. So two stories I'm going to share this morning, one from the old and one from the new. And then we're going to maybe worship and pray together. There's a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Um, let's, let's just read it, actually. I have it on the screen. You can read along if you, if you want to look at the Bibles. Um, you can do that as well. <clears throat> in 1 Samuel chapter 9, there's a great story of David and Mephibosheth. It's always one of those ones that's difficult to say, isn't it? Mephibosheth. In fact, have a go there. Turn to the person beside you and try to say that. Mephibosheth. See if you can get it right. Who? Mephibosheth. Now, the, the fib comes before the sheth, okay? <laughs> yeah. All right, but this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, I have to admit. Sometimes, a lot of people don't know about it, but it is a cracking story. Just a beautiful kind of reflection of the heart of God. So, just the, the, just the context of the story is David was, you know, best friends, basically, with Jonathan, who was Saul's son. And they stuck up for one another, loved one another, all of that kind of thing. And they actually made a covenant with one another that they would bless one another for the rest of their lives and their households. And so when Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle, uh, whatever it was, a number of years later, David's king, he's succeeding in life and all of that kind of thing. And then he, he remembers the covenant he had with Jonathan. And he says this, David asked, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Look for Jonathan's sake. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. So Jonathan has a son. He's lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machar, son of Amil in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machar, son of Amil. 
When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? The king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given to your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Bring him in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands the servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. I didn't realize I was going to have to say Mephibosheth so many times there. Actually, when I'm in my notes here, I've just, like, I've just shortened them to M. Because <laughs> like every time, it does my head, you know, spell check, all the red on uh, anyway. So just call them M. But we see this beautiful story here of the kindness of a king. And it's a lovely window into the heart of God. It's kind of the gospel before the gospel. Isn't it lovely that we have a king in heaven who, like David here, his first kind of predisposed posture is, who can I show kindness to? He's got a smile, remember? Remember his face, first and foremost, is a smile and not a frown. Some of us have grew up thinking God's got like a big furrowed brow when he looks at us. But actually his primary disposition is a smile. He grieves over some of the decisions that we've made and some of the things that have gone in our life. But as he looks at us as people, he, he smiles because he, he wants his kindness to lead us to repentance, right? This is what David does. And he goes to a place called Lodabar, which is interesting. Lodabar means no pasture, no, no communication, basically nothing. Lodabar is like, it was a ghetto in biblical times. There was nothingness there. It was a place of, yeah, just no real fruit, nothing going on. And he goes to Lodabar and not only... Is that destitute enough? But he finds a young boy called Melchizedek who was dropped. Who was dropped. If you read in other places, it says that when he was born, the midwife went to run away when they heard that Saul and Jonathan had died. And Mephibosheth is dropped and he's lame from that point on. And so I don't know what that looked like, whether it's some kind of sort of whatever century that was kind of form of crutches or whatever, but he was lame. He couldn't walk. He probably need carried. And David brings him and Mephibosheth, as it said there, said, what would you think? Why, why would you even think about a dead dog like me? And David's like, Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you all the land that your, grand, that your grandfather Saul owned, and you're always going to eat at my table. It's beautiful, isn't it? You're always going to eat at my table. I, I always thought about this pa- passage when I thought about my dad because when we were growing up, we used to have people stay with us and live with us. And and sometimes when we had people for Sunday lunch, some of the people that stayed with us or lived with us used to go outside. You know, and uh, and my dad never let them go outside. And he used to always say, no, no, where are you going? He says, oh, you've got visitors around. He says, no, no, you, you come and sit at the table. And they always got to sit at the table because at the table... We're, we're all one in Jesus, social class. All of that kind of stuff gets eroded. It's the kindness of the king. And if you can imagine all his generals sitting around the table, and then there's little Mephibosheth kind of clunkily coming in, probably either trailing his leg or whatever he was trying to do because he was lame, pulling himself up at the table. He sat at the king's table, and he ate. And God is looking for us in our brokenness because the reality is every single one of us have been dropped Every single one of us have been broken in some way from life and sin and everything going on. And Jesus goes after us. He is the king who is the kindest king in all the world. And he goes after us. And he goes after us in Lodabar, in the parts of us where there is nothing really going on. And he goes after the broken parts of us, the lame parts of us. And he invites us to come and sit at his table. This is the kindness of the king who is Jesus. We don't feel worthy, but he makes us become worthy in him as we sit at the table. A beautiful story. Hopefully it connects with your heart this morning. But there is more for us. 
there's more in this story, which I didn't realize recently, until recently, and there is more for us. And I think this is where most Christians actually stop. They stop at this place where they've had a revelation of that kindness. They've taken up the invitation, and they enjoy sitting at the table, and they enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. But there's more. There, there's much more. Let me try and explain what's happening here before I make my point. So that's First Samuel 9. If you jump five, six, seven, seven chapters, what's happened in between is David's son is a man called Absalom. Some of you will know the story. And Absalom basically thought he was better than his dad. And he tried to take the kingdom off his dad. And he leads a coup against David and David's um, kingdom. And so David has to flee at this particular point. And many of David's generals, some of them go with him. Some of them seem to side with Absalom. And so David is kind of on the run. He's on a, in an outpost somewhere around that area. Okay. And in 1 Samuel 16, this is what we read. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba. Now remember Ziba, he was the servant of Saul who became Mephibosheth's servant. Now stick with me because this is a really good point. The steward of Mephibosheth was waiting to meet him, Ziba. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins and 100 cakes of figs and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who have become exhausted in the wilderness. The king asked, where is your master's grandson? In other words, where is Mephibosheth? Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to my grandfather, that's Saul, they will restore Saul's kingdom, right? So Ziba's just said that Mephibosheth is going to use this as an opportunity to get back what he thinks was his grandfather's. And then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, the Lord the king. So basically what has happened is Ziba has just made up a lie. He's basically screwed Mephibosheth over, slandered him, shafted him out of his inheritance and taken his inheritance by making up a lie that because David had left, then now he has opportunity to take the kingdom. Not a very nice thing to do, right? <clears throat> but what we, what we find out later, another three chapters later, before you read that, spoil it, uh, before, uh, three, three chapters later then, David has went through the tragedy of Absalom, his son, actually dying. He's grieving Absalom. He comes back to Jerusalem. And on his way back to Jerusalem after this terrible event where his son has died, who had tried to like usurp uh, his throne, uh, the people that had been around Jerusalem or his men start to come out to meet him as he makes his way back. And this is what happens as he comes back. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He'd not taken care of his feet or trimmed his moustache. Sorry, that's the American way to spell moustache. I have to put up with that on my uh, keynote. Should have, should have changed it. Or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. He'd not taken care of his feet, trimmed his moustache, or washed his clothes. He's, he's obviously pretty smelly, right? But there was a reason for it. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled, and I will ride in it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. May the lord, my lord, the king, is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king, but you give your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? This little lad is behest on the mercy and grace of the king who has done so much. He knows he was so undeserving of what the king already gave him. So even though he's been slandered, he leaves it up to the king to make the right choice. And the king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. So David's got the true picture now and he says, okay, well, I give all to Ziba, but now I'm going to divide it. You can have half of it back because I realized he slandered you. And Mephibosheth says this. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that my Lord, the King, has returned. Let him have it all. Just 
give me my king. Take the world. Give me Jesus. And I feel this morning that the Lord would want to say to us, there are some things that some of us are clinging to, striving for, holding on to. And they may not all be bad. But in light of Jesus, Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. Let him have it. Some of us are holding things, trying to justify ourselves in certain situations and circumstances we find ourselves in. Trying to like get stuff back. All the stuff that's attached to being a Christian. All the stuff that added on to being a person of faith. And sometimes you have to count the cost and realize that the next step in the kingdom costs you everything that you've already gained to date. And this is what Mephibosheth said. My my king has the face of an angel. He'll do what's right. Well, I'll give you some of your inheritance back. Well, I don't really care about my inheritance as long as I've got you. And I feel like this morning the Lord wants us to be a people that are so obsessed with Jesus, so obsessed so infatuated with the person of Jesus, it doesn't really matter what we get out of it. Because when we get him, it's enough. It's more than enough. And sometimes the Lord has to disrupt us and use his situations and circumstances to disrupt our categories. To have to, 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 to and uses them. I'm not saying he always um, predetermines those decisions or anything, but I, I believe he, he allows and uses those situations at, at times because he, he, he wants to disrupt the sense of identity and security and comfort we have found in things other than him. And to just say, you know what? I know you've got an inheritance for me, but I'm going to be less focused on what I'm getting out of this in order that I can have you. Mephibosheth is obsessed with his king. He has enjoyed the benefits of the king. He has enjoyed the inheritance. He has enjoyed what he has got out of eating at the king's table. Who wouldn't? That's part of the deal in a sense, and he gets to enjoy it. But since the king left, he couldn't cope anymore. He couldn't wash. He couldn't trim his beard. He couldn't probably eat or whatever. He he was lovesick for his king because his king had done something for him that nobody else had done. And it's into those parts of our lives that I think the Lord wants to speak at this moment and say, all we care about is you. It's a beautiful story. I can just see this. I don't know what age he would have been. But if you picture the scene, David's coming back and he hasn't seen his king in weeks or months. He hasn't seen him. And he's still lame. And David's coming back and he's, Everybody else is running on ahead and there's Mephibosheth like trailing his leg or being pushed on a chair or whatever it is, just trying to get this king, trying to help him understand what really happened. Yeah, it's, it's pure heart, isn't it? It's just pure heart. And that's what God wants. And it was a desperation for his love. And I, I just want to encourage us in clinging to some stuff like stuff, and I'm not saying that some of that stuff isn't quite important stuff to you. It might be. But sometimes, and I don't want to be little, some stuff that we're going through is tough, but sometimes in clinging to stuff, you miss Jesus. Let them have it as long as we have you. One more story, and then then we're going to pray. Let me jump in the New Testament. John chapter 12. Let me read this passage. Six days before the Passover, that means six days before Jesus is about to go to the cross. Jesus came to a place called Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard in expensive perfume, and she poured it in Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. I find it interesting that when Jesus was potentially starting to feel vulnerable, because there was like a warrant out now for his arrest, that he went to the place where he knew he was loved. 
And a bit like Mephibosheth, these were people who were grateful for him. This was Simon the leper's house. So it was Simon who who had healed from leprosy. It was Lazarus who had raised from the dead. You'd be pretty thankful for Jesus for that, wouldn't you? And then Mary and Martha who, who who just loved them. And Jesus goes to this little place called Bethany because he knows that the people there love him. And this is a Saturday before Palm Sunday. Simon has prepared a meal. It was courageous of these guys to do this because, as I said, people were out to kind of arrest Jesus at this point. But something's happening in these moments. It's almost like there's a sense of foreboding. Something's going to happen. And in the midst of something's going to happen, Mary, in desperation again, we could lose this. We could lose. We could lose our king. We could lose this guy, who has transformed our lives with his love. And something instinctive happens there, where she does something that a woman doesn't do in that culture. Something happens. It's like an instinctive love and impulse just erupts out of her, and she can't not go and get her most expensive perfume and pour it all over Jesus, and anoint his head, and anoint his feet. And wipe her, wipe his feet with her, her hair. She had a costly treasure, an alabaster box filled with ointment, and she anoints Jesus, pouring it over her head. This describes just the nature of it. In doing so, she broke the womanly reserve. Right, broke all kind of cultural barriers here. In order to envelope him completely in the fragrance of her love, he had anointed her soul with the words of his spirit. And she anointed his head with an art of her love. He had dried her tears at her brother's grave. And now she dried his feet with her hair. Where are the souls like Mary, who break the heart of their old nature and joyfully give everything they have in the service of his love? He had anointed her soul with the words of the Spirit. Now she anointed his head with an art of her love. He had dried her tears at her brother Lazarus' grave. Now she dried his feet with her hair. This is the love of the proper lovers of God. This is the love of a revival people. The thing that strikes me about both the situation with Mephibosheth and with Mary here is there was a hint of desperation about both of them. We could lose our king. And the rebuke, if you like, is maybe too strong a word, but the check of the Lord to me at the moment is it's just not really desperate for him. And just not really desperate enough. But but let me try and tell you something here. These are desperate times we live in. These are desperate times we live in. More people killed by suicide see that, over the weekend. More people killed by suicide, died by suicide in Northern Ireland than, than, than people killed in the same time through the Troubles, by the Troubles. These these are, this our, our, our country is desperate. And on a global scale, you know, our kids are being discipled by pornography and not Jesus. These these are desperate times. These are desperate times. It's volatile out there. It's fragile. Our world, our civilization, all of those things. And I'm not being overdramatic. It's just actually the facts and the truth. If if you look at it, it's it's the way it is. These are desperate times. These are desperate, desperate times. And these are the moments when, throughout the history, church history, these are the moments where outpourings of the Spirit happen, where the renewal of the life of God comes. But God is looking for people that will love Him in the same way that He loves them. God is looking for people that will steward an outpouring of His Spirit because He looks in the world and He is a Father who is grieved. He is grieved that the world, His heart is broken about what humans are doing to humans, what image bearers are doing to other image bearers. It breaks His heart and He longs to do something about it and He loves it when His people capture something of his heart like I've just described and start to pray it and start to press in that and start to say, God, come. Only you can heal our land. Only you can heal our nation. Only you can revive your, your church. God, would you come? God is drawn to that kind of prayer. He can't not move because he starts to understand there is a people that love him, that join with the Spirit and say, the Spirit and the bride say, come. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come like never before. Come in our streets. Come in our schools. Come in our businesses. Come in our churches. Break in in new ways. Break in by your presence. Do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. That's what God is looking for. But, but God wants to stir that level of hunger. And we can't really seek his face unless we want to. And sometimes, and please don't hear this as like a shame thing today. It's just an encouragement. I'm talking to Sometimes it's just, just not desperate enough. And so this was a prayer that I started to pray when I was a young person. I came across, I love a bit of Tozer now and again. And I, I read this when I was younger. And this has been a prayer that I've prayed for my life for years ever since. Okay. And this is that, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of, of my need for further grace and I'm ashamed by my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, this is it. Because this is where I have to start. I want to want thee. Do you know sometimes we sing that song, I'm hungry for God and hungry for good and the only thing you're really hungry for is what you're going to eat afterwards. Right? You don't really feel that hungry and it feels a bit disingenuous, the fact that you're singing this song. Have you ever been there? I have. You know, like, And sometimes I'm actually going to get up and preach and it's during worship and I'm going, God, I'm dry here. I'm not just dry, I'm bored. And I'm dry and I'm bored and I've nothing to really give and like, I'm supposed to be preaching. God, would you do something in my heart? Would you defibrillate my heart? Would you shock me again into the life of what it is to live for you and follow you? Would you come and get a hold of me? And then somebody else gets up and shares the story of what Jesus has done in their life. How like somebody's broken, has become new. And it's like, oh, Jesus, this is why I love you. This is why I love you because you change lives and you transform people's hearts and lives. I want to want to. I want to want to. I long to be filled with longing. And I thirst to be more thirsty still. I, I learned that off for heart and I pray that often. Lord, I want to want to. If you could, if I could, if I could start there, I, I long to be filled with longing and a thirst to be more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, that I might know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me the grace to rise up and follow thee from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you maybe to pray that prayer in a moment. Maybe the, maybe Caroline and the guys would come up. I want to respond in a song this morning. Just, But we need the attitude of that great hymn, don't we? Fanny Crosby, take the world, but give me Jesus. Apparently she was talking to one of her neighbors, and the neighbor was complaining about poverty. And the neighbor was complaining about what they didn't have. And she said to him, if I had the wealth, I would be able to do just what I wish to. No, he said, sorry, if I had the wealth, I would be able to do what I want to. If I had the money and the wealth, I could get out of this place, then I'd be able to do what I really want to do. And I'd be able to make an appearance of the world in the world. And she replied, well... You can have the world, but give me Jesus. And that inspired her to write these words. Let me read them out. Why don't you close your eyes for a moment? Listen to the words of this old hymn. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abideth ever through eternal years to see him. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption, pledge of endless life above. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching over me, I can sing, though billows row. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Listen, let me view his constant smile. Then throughout my pilgrim journey, light will cheer me all the while. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Oh, the heights and depths of mercy. Oh, the lengths and breadths of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption. Pledge of endless life 
above. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We've got a few moments here to respond to the Lord. And so I just want you um, just to sit before the Lord here for a moment. And just as we start to, to worship gently, I want to encourage you just to respond to the Lord. And if you feel this morning that you would you just love to respond to this by by holding on to those words, by saying, like Mephibosheth, you can, you can let it, you can let them have it all. I just want my king. Or like Mary, you want to symbolize that desperation that she had by just doing something impulsive. Just by responding symbolically by just standing to your feet and... Um, and asking Jesus to fill you with a want to want him and a longing to be filled with longing and a thirst to be more thirsty. As we go through this theme, unveil faces. We'll only seek him if we want to. And he'll not force us, but he will woo us. And he is wooing us today, I feel. And so just in this moment, as we start to worship, whenever you're ready, as your own personal response, just stand to your feet and say, Jesus... I long for you. I want to I wanna put aside the other things that get attached to me, stuff that takes my attention and my focus. I just want to fix my eyes on you in these days. So just when you're ready, feel free to stand and say that to Jesus yourself and join in with the words as we worship. <laughs>